Before I get into today's interview with Dr. Kevin Duty talking about conflicts of interest in the fertility field, I want to tell you about two new things I'm going to do. First is I want to give a shout out to listeners on the show that tell me that they listen frequently. There's a lot of fertility practice owners and providers and other folks in the field that tell me that they listen to the show very frequently, and I want to give them a shout out. So I'm going to start with Dr. John Federelli from Fertility Institute of Hawaii who tells me that he listens to every single episode, so I'll know if he's telling the truth if I get a text from him when he hears this first shout out. And the second change that we're making to the show is that instead of me reading the bio when I have the guest on, I wanna give you a bit of a synopsis of the conversation that we had and why the interview went in that direction. So I had Dr. Kevin J. Duty from Care Fertility on. Dr. Duty founded his practice, Care Fertility in Fort Worth Tech, with his wife, Dr. Kathy Duty, in 1989. He also is the co-creator of Effortless IVF, which is a new art technology treatment which uses InvoCell. So he's involved with InvoBiosciences, and he is the chief scientist of a group called Global Fertility, Fertility and Genetics. And so the conversation started about entrepreneurship in the fertility field, how a practice owner or a doctor goes off into other for entrepreneurial ventures. And then we went more specific. We started talking about conflicts of interest and Dr. Duty laid out a framework for what he feels is acceptable, what he feels uh, is probably just uh, on the other side um, in, in terms of ethics. Um, and he shares his concerns and he, he lays a framework for that and transparency. And, uh, and, and talked about uh, some of those reflections about commercial interests coming into the field. And so I really enjoyed that. I think he was um, pretty descriptive and I'm, I'm glad that uh, he, he shared from his own experience and then just looking at the field at large. So please enjoy this interview with Dr. Kevin Duty. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Dr. Duty, Kevin, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. I, I wanted to have you on for a while because I, you're, you're a private practice owner. You are involved in some other ventures, and I want to explore this dynamic in the fertility field for those that maybe they are practice owners, but, or maybe they're just REIs at other groups. I've, I've heard a, a, especially a cohort of younger entrepreneurial folks that are either just finishing fellowship or just out of it saying, I don't know if I want to even practice or, or to what extent I want to, maybe I want to do a 50% practice load and then spend the rest of my time working for a Silicon Valley group or starting my own venture and uh, so I want to get some insight from you there, but can you give a context? You own your own practice in Texas, and can, so can you talk about a little bit of the history of that and then some of the other things that you're involved with to set the stage? 
Sure. Uh, yeah, medicine was a little bit different back then. So I, I finished fellowship in 1989. Um, and uh, at that time, um, subspecialty in OBGYN was a relatively new thing. There weren't very many uh, subspecialists in reproductive endocrinology and infertility in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And, and there were essentially none in the western half of the metroplex. So uh, I joined initially a group that ran the county hospital residency program in Fort Worth. And the chairman of the residency program, Ralph Anderson, and I uh, had a private office where we would see our our respective patients. He was a GYN oncologist. Uh, and of course, I started doing uh, infertility and IVF. Um, after a couple of years, uh, after a year, my wife joined me in practice and in that practice. And then um, we got busy and, and really steered off on our own uh, into the what is now the Center for Assisted Reproduction. Uh, initially, we had uh, done quite a, a bit of work in hospital type systems. Uh, and it became very apparent uh, quickly that the hospital administrators really had no clue as to as to what IVF and infertility was about. Um, and so in 19, in January 96, we moved into our uh, facility that we've got now, which is a freestanding ambulatory surgical center uh, and uh, IVF laboratory clinic specifically focused on fertility treatment and fertility preservation. Set the stage a little bit more and talk about some of the ventures that you're involved in today. I know InvoCell is one of them. I believe that you work, you, you at least counsel practices in, in Canada, I believe, and uh, work with groups in China. Can you talk about some of the other entities that you're involved with? So I, I am a medical director and I'm on the board of directors for Envo Bioscience, which is a company that makes a, and I happen to have one in front of me, a little vaginal incubator so that fertilization and embryo development can happen instead of these complex electromechanical devices, incubators in the laboratory setting. Um, we get the eggs, mix them with sperm, put them in this little capsule that goes into the vagina for five days and the woman acts as the, as the natural incubator providing the right temperature and, and CO2, oxygen environment, et cetera, for, for that. So I've been involved with that for several years now. Um, and I do have uh, collaborations in China. I've got uh, uh, I'm a scientific director and, and a uh, partner in global fertility and genetics, which has a clinic in uh, New York and is also based in China. How do you, how do you get to those involvements from where you started? So I think I've always been interested in, in research and, and kind of cutting edge technologies. Um, so from the very beginning, uh, even though I was in private practice, uh, we would publish a lot to uh, our own research within our clinic, uh, publish a lot of abstracts at the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, um, ultimately began to be uh, known for that. Um, we were the first clinic in the United States to do extended embryo culture or blastocyst culture routinely in all of our patients. And um, I think that 
got us some notoriety. And so I've over the years, I've met a lot of people, a lot of interesting people and, and presented with a lot of opportunities. So is it in the case of uh, Invo, is it something that, you know, you're, you're working on something and say, oh, I really like this, or they approach you and say, we need someone to, on our board. Who, who makes the first move in a, right, in a situation like Right. That? So, so uh, I had been doing a lot of speaking across um, actually Canada. And so one of the people that had been involved with that introduced me to a fellow named Jason Broom, who um, had the distributorship for the InvoCell device in Canada um, before it was available in the United States. And uh, he, he was not a physician, and, but he wanted to get some traction within the Canadian uh, IVF community and felt that if there was some exposure of somebody doing it in the United States that uh, was well known to them, that, that maybe it would help his business. So he showed me the device. It was quite fascinating. I was interested in it. It was only, it had been tested in, in South America and had been used for shorter embryo culture timeframes uh, up to three days. So let me back up a little bit. So I think people don't understand that, that culturing embryos, human embryos is kind of tricky. Um, embryos don't have a, a liver, a kidney, lungs to filter out the impurities in ambient air. And so we have to have very sophisticated air handling systems that, that, scavenge out not only particles, but volatile organic compounds and things. And, and of course, um, electromechanical incubators that, that create a low oxygen and high carbon dioxide environment to create the right, the right environment uh, and enable the right pH. Um, so the concept that this could happen in a little plastic capsule in the vagina and outside of a complex, expensive infrastructure was uh, certainly very interesting to me. But but I was not interested in three-day culture. I think that we had moved way past that. Um, so I was interested in, in looking at it for uh, a more extended time frame. Uh, so I collaborated with uh, then the uh, principals in the company Invo Bioscience to be able to get devices. And Jason and I kind of partnered. We went to a, a, an IRB, an Institutional Investigational Review Board, uh, to uh, to conduct research on human subjects. And I, I did two trials. One, just looking at the feasibility of extended culture using patient's husband's sperm uh, uh, in the device in their vagina and looked at things like maintenance of sterility and pH and sperm survival. Um, and then when we, we had a couple tricks that we needed to figure out, uh, but when we we figured them out. We were able to then translate that to culturing human embryos. And we did a trial comparing the conventional incubators in a lab to the InvoCell device and found uh, quite good results with that. So um, this isn't a passive investment that I'm hearing. At least, you know, it's, it's not like you're just, you're not taking a X percent stock in a company and appearing on a board. You're leading these clinical trials and helping to construct 
the studies and determine feasibility. So that leads me into a, a question of a bandwidth. You know, when I, whenever I see someone described as a serial entrepreneur, I wonder how do they do that? You know, I own one company and I think that I will be able to get to a, a certain level where I can start to invest in other things and this will still be my stake. And then the other ventures will be the, the side dishes perhaps. Um, but right now I'm totally focused on this and I see, I see most practice owners being pretty consumed by not just their role as a business owner, which I often feel they don't devote enough time and attention to, but just their role as their, their, their caseload as a physician. How do you, how do you manage each of these things? How do you decide how much time you're going to devote attention? You know, if one thing starts to, to feel like you're not giving it enough attention, do you correct? How do you make those decisions? I think there are kind of feedbacks that happen. If you're not giving adequate attention, you'll learn that pretty quickly. <laughs> and, and you kind of t turn it around and devote it. Yeah, so I do do several things. So I, I've, uh, but I've evolved you know, I started back in the beginning in the early days of all this, right? So I started practice before CLIA 88 was implemented, which is the, the law that required office physician laboratories to be inspected and accredited. So I've been through that whole process. Uh, you know, I, I was there at the early days of embryology. So I, I am, you know, a laboratory director. I'm an, essentially an embryologist, andrologist. I have to wear that hat. But I think, you know, all of these things, although they appear to be disparate, separate things, they, they all have common features to them. And, um, and, and so it, it's not hard, especially if you've kind of evolved into these as the, as the field has evolved to be able to, to handle it. I want to talk about how that impacts collegial relationships and how someone might consider that because you know, I own a marketing and business development firm and I'm in a few different mastermind groups of other digital firm owners or other creative firm owners. And when it's just us in the room and everyone's just the owner of a firm, there's a dynamic, but inevitably somebody starts a software that they sell to other agencies. Some you know, might develop some sort of a white label service for agencies, and then they become someone that also sells to. So they're still our peer because they own their firm, but right. now they have, they have some other venture so that they sell to the rest of us. Yeah. And I think some really navigate that sea a lot more smoothly than others for, and, and some, it feels like, wow, he's, he's still one of us. He's, he's just, he's offering this to us and other people. It feels like, I don't feel like I've got the same relationship with, you know, how do you, what, what, how do you manage that? Right. So, um, yeah, the software aspect springs to mind that I've actually been doing software too. And, and, and so, um, I started a company in 1998 called digital medical data systems or digital empty systems. And we developed a, software product that's an electronic medical record that serves the infertility IVF field. And I do sell to my peers and my friends, right? Or we license our product um, for their use. Uh, but um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't find those things particularly hard to navigate. So I don't, I'm not a hard pressure salesman. So I don't, yeah. I don't try and, and pitch something that, that I can't support. And I think it all, it all works out. I, I think 
our field might be even more sensitive than than others maybe or or people just because i i just hear it a lot and a lot and now a lot of people are involved in different they they sit on a board for a tech company or they sit on a board for a new ai company or uh pharma and i was hosting a a meeting back when we could still host in-person meetings, it was January of 2020. And I had a independent REI practice owners round table. And it was amazing. And the reason I, I made it that way was because there was no speakers, there was no sponsors. I said, I'm going to be there just to facilitate. Everyone else is going to be an independent practice owner and 11 different practice owners from all over the US and Canada. And uh, uh, one of the topics that people want to discuss was InvoCell. And actually a few different people, I had them make the agenda and then we just rank ordered the topics and we said, okay, we won't leave until we talk about these different topics. If, and I, I don't remember even if we ended up, I don't even think we ended up talking about InvoCell, but it was on the topic list. And when I was inviting someone, they, were, they said, oh, oh, do you work for InvoCell? Do you work for Dr. Duty? Are you trying, are you trying to sell us something? And it was, and, then it, and so then it was, I was being suspect of, right. am I selling something as opposed to facilitating a peer group? I said, I've, I've never met, I, I'm not a show for Kevin Duty. InvoCell doesn't, if, if there's sponsored content show on this show, you'll know about it. You'll know that right. it's sponsored content. I'm not getting any money from them. It was just something other people wanted to talk about. And so I found myself in that situation. So how do you recommend you said yourself, you're not a high pressure sales guy. You believe in the products that you're dealing with. How do you recommend for, for people that, that are getting into a venture that they maintain that integrity? Yeah, I, th- I think so. So I never um, would presume to, to uh, push InvoCell on a, on a clinic or, or know how they might use it in a clinic. Uh, but I'm enthusiastic about it because I can see what, and how we use it in our clinic. And I think it, it uh, finds a very important uh, niche uh, that serves a population of patients that otherwise wouldn't be getting um, assisted reproductive technology care. So um, for, for us, it works really well. And I don't presume medicine is kind of like politics. It's all local. There are different things happening in different parts of the country, uh, different factors in play. Um, but for me and my clinic, uh, I, I think it's, it's been very helpful for, for our patients and has attracted a great many new patients that, that probably we otherwise would not have seen. But again, I don't, I don't necessarily think that it, it would work in every practice. I think it depends on, on how, what you feel about it or how enthusiastic you might be about it. This might be a good segue into the topic of conflict of interest, which I'm interested in your perspective on because you own your practice outright. And I've been more interested in this topic for people that are uh, in, in multiple part or in large partner practices, or they um, maybe they're in the C-suite of a, a large network or something, because I think that's where there's more, uh, opportunity for conflict of interest. I own my company 100% outright. If I decide to have another venture, it's not really a conflict with my company. So I'm talking about more, I'm, I'm talking about more conflicts to the company as opposed to right. uh, anything else. But I do sometimes see, okay, this partner has a stake in this company or this partner owns part of a firm 
and how do you how how do you, maybe you are in a good position because of your practice ownership? How do you see yeah, conflict so, of interest so, with the practice? So I think that's a you know a great concept to talk about, right? So I've seen people give a talk on say pre-implantation genetic testing, and and of course at the beginning of our talks we have to have a mandatory disclosure side slide, CME type, continuing medical medical education type talk, and 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 you know the individual said I don't you know, I don't have any conflicts of interest. And well, oh my gosh, you've, your, your practice is doing a lot of pre-implantation genetic testing. I think your patients are paying for it. So of course, we've all got conflicts of interest. If, if uh, you know, if I talk about IVF, I, I, or if I talk about doing surgery, I, that's, that's how my medical practice makes, makes its revenue. Uh, and the same with, with the InvoCell. I think if I talk about InvoCell, and I'm telling you, I'm using it in my clinic. That's a con- I'm making money off of it. So, um, um, you know, and in, in, in some sense, that's a conflict of interest. Now, if I were to say, "Hey, I think you should use this, and and you should buy it," and I don't disclose that that I'm a shareholder in Invo Bioscience, now that's kind of a, a kind of a more hidden conflict of interest. Then, but I, I mean, I think there's no disadvantage of being a totally open and honest about the reason I'm a shareholder in Invo Bioscience is I believe in it, right? So sure. I wonder when you get to a point where you're in a much larger group and as I'm calling on people, for example, and then maybe the, the CEO or the CMO is also, also doing consulting or part-time uh, consulting work that they sell to other groups. So now it's kind of like, okay, you work for this group, but we, we're both potentially calling on the same people or even your group. I wonder right. what that's like because it's not the entire suite. It's just one person. It would be like if um, my operations manager who is in charge of vetting our project management software, our, our vendors also own stake in a video company that we might use. And I, I wonder, do you have any thoughts on conflict of interest? Yeah, I, I, think, I think conflicts of interest I mean, they they can be bad when they're not open and honest. I think I think conflicts of interest are just totally fine as long as you're transparent about it, right? So let let's say, and, and I know this is happening. Talking about IVF practices around the country, is that you'll have say some venture that started where investors could be generalist OBGYN doctors in an IVF laboratory, right? And then the reproductive endocrinologist might have an equity stake or might be working as a as a salaried person, but but there's incentive for referral from the OBGYN to that particular IVF program because they feel like there's you know they're supporting something that they've got an equity stake in. I think that's general bad uh, <laughs> because I think that you've got a motivation for referral that especially if you're not transparent about that to the patient as to why you're referring them. You know, it could be that, you know, you thought that this person is the best fertility specialist in town and now he's selling some equity stake in the laboratory and you're saying, oh, I'm investing because I know that's a good thing. All right, that's probably, but you still should tell that to the patient, right? I think more often than not, if it's less transparent, Hey, I got approached by a venture capital person to invest in an IVF center, and I'm referring you there because I've got a stake in it. 
if you're if you're giving that level of transparency to the patient, the patient's not going to like that. I mean, I wouldn't like that as a patient. I'd be saying, what the heck? Why are you trying to make money off of an IVF cycle and you're not even an IVF doctor or you're not providing the care? Why why should you be trying to profit from that? So if, if you're trans, if you have a conflict of interest and you can be totally transparent about why you've got that conflict of interest. I think you can feel good about it. I think if you're, for some reason, you don't want to be transparent about it, I think that's, that could be a problem. Is that prevalence? So transparency is the, is the number one thing when most people would agree with that, at least say they agree with that. Are there any conflicts that are, are simply too stark in your opinion? I, I, some, some physicians really believe in the pharmacy-owned model. Some oh, really believe. I, that I, I hate it. I, I, hate, I, hate, I hate that pharmacy-owned. And it gets back to... You know, are you informing the patient that you're making a profit from from prescribing to a certain pharmacy? If you are, is it being hidden in a bunch of paperwork where it's just like one of these software end, end user license agreement where they're not seeing it? Because why would you do that? Why would you want to make money off of a business that you're not an active participant in, right? So that's so ridiculous, actually, that I want to make money off of my patient's buying their medicines. You know what? I, if I can't make a living off of providing medical care and the laboratory services that I, you know, sell to my patients, that's, I think that looks bad. I don't, I don't like it. I think I'm understanding the difference in your view is with, with something like maybe well, a, a PGT company would be different because you're administering the P is that different or do you feel, is that the same as physician owned pharmacy model? I, I think it could be similar or it could be the same. If you're doing PGT in-house because it's convenient, you can offer it for your patient, a quality product for your patients at a lesser cost. And maybe you can do a fresh embryo transfer as opposed to sending it out and freezing. Okay. I get that. But if, if you're, sending your patients to a pharmacy or a laboratory that you don't have, you're not involved in the running of it. And as a, a physician, you should be looking out for your patient's interest and, and constantly evaluating, hey, is this pharmacy giving my patients good service? Can I get two or more pharmacies to realize that I've got a lot of patients to give them, not because I want to profit from them, but because I want, to, I want good service for my patients. So they're going to compete against each other. No, once I've involved myself, once I've bought an equity stake in a pharmacy or a PGT company, then I'm not going to be, I mean, let's be honest here. Are, are you going to say, well, maybe they don't have the best price, so I'm going to refer to somebody else now? No, you've got an equity stake in it. I, I think if you're involved in the, in, the, in the running of it so that you can say, hey, we're not being competitive enough, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to lower the pricing or negotiate a better deal or, you know, you're really intimately involved in, in providing that service or that care, for sure, own it and profit from it. But if you're being paid for referral, which is essentially that, it's essentially a kickback, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, let's call it what it is. I'm seeing the distinction between if, if the mere act is referral, then that is on one side of the line, where is it, if one is actively involved in the management of the company, that is different because right. you're, you're influencing it to the I, standard that you would ideally I, want. I, I, let, let's go even more internal to that. I'll tell a patient, hey, you have fibroids. I think we need to take them out. I'm kind of referring that patient to me now as a surgeon, and I'm going to profit from that surgical treatment, right? 
as opposed to maybe you might think, oh, the person making the decision that they need surgery should not be the one profiting from the actual surgery itself. So is there a conflict of interest there? Yeah, maybe I'm referring to it, but I'm, at least I'm a providing the service and I, and I think I'm providing it for the patient because I think I can do a better job because I, I know how to do this particular surgery and I've done a lot of them, right? But I'm providing the service and I think that's key. I know what service is being provided. I know, and maybe when I'm 72 years old, I'll, I'll you know, I'll say, hey, I'm, I know who needs surgery. I, you need surgery, but I'm no longer competent to do the to be the best person for, for you to do it. So I'm going to refer it out. But again, so I, I think that, that it's okay to self-refer when you're actively doing a laboratory service, you're actively doing the surgery, you're actively involved in delivering the care that the patient's paying for. If I'm investing in a pharmacy that's going to be selling my patient drugs, I'm going to have a bias. What good am I doing the company? What good? Did they need my money? No, they didn't. They need my referral. That's why they're selling me an equity stake. Let's be clear. Uh, otherwise, they'd sell me an equity stake. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Okay, so here's the skinny. Just as your fertility group has advantages over other groups, your competitors also possess advantages over your IVF center that you don't have access to yet. Now, you can say their consolidation model won't work, or their lab sucks, or their doctor's crazy, or that low-cost model cuts quality, or who would ever get their fertility testing done from a food truck, but many of them are onto something. If you're not maximizing your own natural strengths and adapting to what the new patient demographic is demanding, then they start to do more cycles where you are, get better rates from an insurance and vendors, take your patients, and even your staff. We work to maximize those competitive advantages because Fertility Bridge is the only creative and business development firm that exclusively subspecializes in the fertility field. We have an entire team of people who help fertility centers attract and retain the right patients and nothing else for a living. So we can help only your competitors and then they have an even bigger advantage or we can help you too. Our initial consulting engagement is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's only $5.97 and we equip your partners and leadership with the foundation to leverage your competitive strengths, not mimicking someone else and not let your competitors have an unfair advantage. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever and there's a 100% money back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. So where there are a lot of younger doctors who are having this internal dialogue right now of how much involvement they, they want to have. I, I spoke with someone who's, who's um, fixing to open their own practice within years. They're thinking about this model. This is the, the ethical internal dialogue that they have to, what level of involvement might be sufficient for them to, to think about? If, is an advisory role sufficient? Does that need to be explicit in, in it's well, well, I get to opine on this or I get to have this much involvement. Yeah. What, yeah, no, no, no I think it's okay to serve on an advisory board level uh, for compensation, but I don't think, so I've done that before for when it was Good Start Genetics, say for a genetics company to get their input. This was when the expanded carrier screening was first coming out and they put together a group of people that they thought could give advice to them. But never was any comp and it was minimal compensation but never was it linked to any referral for that 
you know, I advise to, to pharmaceutical companies, right? So I've, I've been a consultant to AMD Serrano. I've been consultant to, fair, to all the major players, including some players on the international level that have tried to, to do trials to get their drugs within the U.S. So I consult on their, on their study design and their analysis and et cetera and meet with the FDA and all that. But, but I, I feel better about doing it because I do it for all of them. Right. So if I were to be aligned with just Merck or just Serono or just Faring, or then that's where, first of all, I, I think as a company, they, you're more attractive to them. You know, if, if you're doing speaking, if they know you speak for other companies, because, because then your audience, your audience knows that you're not in their pocket. And that um, ties back to the collegial presentation as well, that if one is involved in, in different areas, that it's, it, it might be better than just hawking one group or. Right. And it goes with a, the PGT lab or the, or the pharmacy. If, if you're, I, I, I just think that's wrong. I, from, I just, from your vantage point, because you do business in the United States, Canada, China, any other countries? On a professional level, I've been involved in the professional trade org and SREI. So for SART, I've been very involved with Africa with Uganda and Nigeria implementate, but these are non-for-profit type undertakings, right? So, so at least what maybe just from the, your perspective in, in doing business and working with other clinics, if we're maybe China, Canada, the U S maybe there's some other country from your vantage point is the, the tendency to be involved in other types of groups or, or I guess like the kickbacks, the referrals, the things that are ethically gray, is that more or less or the same prevalent in other countries as it is in the United States? So I think we have rules here that are more strict than other countries. I don't, I think that they're, I guess it's a mix, right? Um, so I'm aware that in other countries, the pharmaceutical companies can, can say pay for the physicians to go to ESHRAE, you know, to the European Society for Human Reproduction and Embryology or, or, or maybe ASRM, you know, so, so international tra travel, et cetera. That's not okay in the United States. Um, so that doesn't happen in the United States. So I, I, think, I, I think that there are different rules that apply in different areas. Uh, U.S., you can't, you know, so physicians are kind of weird about the kickbacks, and I think it's, it's appropriately so. So if I refer a patient of mine to another doctor to do surgery, they can't pay me for that referral. It's illegal to do that. It's against the law. You know, there are ways that people try and game the system. I'm not, I think we kind of went into that, but, but it is against the law to, to do that. And it's, it's not the same in every specialty, right? So if you're an attorney and you refer a client and you can actually get a kickback from it, it's, that's, that's okay. Um, but, I, but I think we treat medicine a little bit differently and we treat healthcare and, and all that. And I think rightly so. I think you, you, you just don't want to have any conflicts of interest. But, but they do happen, right? So, so people are employed now by these big healthcare organizations that have, you know, that are horizontally integrated and you've got, you know, primary care physicians who, who are financially penalized if they refer out of network to a specialist that might, in their mind, give them the best care for their patient as opposed to somebody in network. But they're, I'm not going to say their hands are tied. They can do it, but they're going to get 
essentially di disciplined or reprimanded it at the end of the day. As the fertility field expands and it becomes more than just, as it, as it already has, more than dealing with simply patient cases that are cases of infertility as a result of a disease, but we've had Jamie Metzl on the show and David Sable talking about the expansion of PGT and and we've also talked about fertility preservation and uh, the demographic continuing to delay childbirth, 20% uh, possibly of millennial and Gen Z patients being of same sex couples and needing their part. So as we, as we just see a real growth in assisted reproductive technology, do you envision a possible future as it gets so big and the number of REIs are so small that uh, many REIs just have more to gain by not being in practice, whether for themselves or, or someone else, they can be part of whatever solution in entrepreneurial venture, whether it's artificial intelligence or lab technology or, or anything else. Do you envision a scenario where less of the REIs actually go into practice and, and possibly just take the corporate route? No, I think for most REIs, they're their best opportunity to, to make a living is going to be doing what they're trained to do. And, you know, there's these booms and bust cycles of, of investment. And, you know, there's a lot of, you see in the stock market, you know, things are, 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 and maybe I don't get it from a business standpoint. Right. So I, I see companies that are, that are selling for a lot of money that aren't profitable. Well, that's very different than 30, 40, years ago where, where how a company was valued depended primarily on what kind of profits they were bringing for their shareholders. And now it's more like a game of musical chairs and the stock is valued at what you can sell it for. As long as you can sell it for more money than you bought it, then that's what it's worth. But ultimately there's not going to be a buyer and that's when the music stops. And, and if, if there's no, other, no subsequent buyer and it's not profitable, then, then it goes away. And I honestly think that's what our infertility field is doing. I think you've got a lot of people who are looking at it and saying, gosh, this is a, this is a big industry and it's cash pay to a large extent and it's untapped. And there are a lot of patients that aren't getting fertility care, which is true, right? So, you know, there, it's, it's, there, there, unfortunately, there is a decreased access to care. There are a lot more patients that need to have care than, than are getting it. And that's primarily due to the, the fact that it is, in, in many cases, cash pay and, and it's constrained by the infrastructure and the physicians that are out there. But I think a lot of this investment and in saying, oh, you're going to make, you know, we're going to have an ability to, to aggregate a bunch of clinics, you know, not, not even thinking about efficiencies with a common IT infrastructure or anything. They're not even doing that. They're just saying, hey, we're going to buy up a lot of clinics. And then we're going to sell it for more money to the next buyer. And somehow that's creating value. But now you've got who has to make money now to be happy. You've got to, you know, physicians got to make money. The embryologist has to make money. That's always been the case, right? But now you've got some outside investor that's not part of the delivering of the care that's, that's got to make money. And maybe you've got somebody who's referring the patient who, you know, who's paid for some of this infrastructure to have part ownership in it because they're going to get their referrals and they want to get some return on their investment. And all of a sudden, we've taken a, a service which is already expensive and we've priced a lot of our, our patients out of it. Now, you've got more people that are trying to profit from it. At some point, that breaks. I don't, I don't. 
I, one, one doctor described it to me as everyone comes in and says that they're going to expand the pie, but they're just taking more of a, of a piece of your pie. And to me, that's the binary success or failure of the value proposition of a business, including my own. In, in other words, if we don't actually help people, if we don't help bring in more revenue, more patients, help patients more easily flow through the process, if we don't succeed in doing that, then all we are is a, an expense. And if we, if we exceed, then we're investment and people are happy. But it is, it's, it's more or less binary. Exactly. And so what you have is you've got a lot of people who put their, you know, their whole life and their sweat equity into building a practice. And in medicine, here's the deal. You can only charge, unless you go through certain shenanigans, you, you, you're really only supposed to profit from delivering your medical care, right? So once you retire, you can kind of sell your practice. But what are you selling? You're selling your patient list. You're selling your goodwill, your your brand, what what have you? What are what are you selling? But a lot of people are my age, a little younger, a little older, and they're thinking, I've you know I've got a practice that I've built, spent a lot of effort. I want to monetize my equity somehow. And somebody comes along and says, Hey, we've got an investor. But ultimately, that person's not going to be practicing any longer. And so you're going to have to have somebody delivering the medical care. So you're going to have to hire younger folks that, that didn't profit from that sale, right? And so now you've got them delivering health care and, you know, there's only so much you can charge for it to be competitive in the marketplace. And then how little am I going to take just to work for an established, already, you know, up and running IVF clinic before I'm going to say, hmm, you know, maybe I can do better on my own and I'm just going to start my own IVF clinic and it's not rocket science, right? Why do I need to pay all these people who paid money to my predecessors, right? And, and IVF doesn't scale in the same way. So, so some things really do have a good economy of scale. So if you make software and, you know, how much is one additional software license to produce. It's nothing. It's the cost was, was in the production of the development of the software. On the other hand, medical care is quite different and it's like, it's like serving food, right? So yes, there are some economies of scale that can be achieved through aggregation, but there are also complexities that, that arise from, those, from scaling and those complexities cause corruption, whether intended corruption or just corruption because of complexity and create inefficiency. Etc. So not all things scale well, and I think I think delivery of medical care doesn't always scale well. So we've talked about some of the conflicts that can occur from commercial interests. We've talked about how to navigate some of those conflicts and framework for transparency, and also which make more sense to be involved with, and which might on on the far end of the other spectrum might just be a, a kickback. And you've you've addressed some guidelines and some concerns and. In concluding with our audience, who is mostly practice owners, um, mostly your peers, and also many fellows and people coming out of fellowship, how, how would you want to conclude? What are, you, what are you paying attention to in the field right now? In my practice, what I'm paying attention to is the things that make me deliver care better, more efficiently, more value-oriented for the patient, value-oriented. What that means is that I think coronavirus has been a terrible thing, right? But there's silver lining to it. So we've learned how to be more efficient in doing our consultations and our, and our discussions and our patient follow-ups and things like that using Zoom and, and similar systems. And I think that that's going to continue to translate to, you know, greater efficiency. I think 
I think there's been a lot of focus on clinics expanding their footprint by having satellite clinics. And, and I think a lot of that's going to going to retract, contract a little bit, because I think you achieve a lot of the same goals by using telehealth as you would by putting up an office that's 10, 15 minutes closer to a patient, right? And for many groups, they already were the redheaded stepchild of the group. It's, you know, it, it doesn't even have a web page sometimes, or they don't have consistent hours, and, you know, they're sending an NP right. out there gonna, twice a month. You're not going to do weekends out there at a minimum, right? So you can't, it's it's just not feasible to put a put an endocrine analyzer or, a, you know, or an embryology lab in every neighborhood. And so you had to centralize a lot of stuff anyway. What the satellite clinics were giving you was more convenient access primarily for new patient visits and, and some follow-up discussions for patients in that, in that little area. Patients were generally willing to take a little drive for their egg retrieval and maybe their hysteroscopies and, and procedural type things. Um, I, th- I don't think anybody views that as a as a major inconvenience right so i i think that this idea that you have to have a physical large geographic footprint i, I think it's it's going to be reassessed with this dr duty kevin thank you very much for coming on inside reproductive health sure pleasure to be here You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.